Hello, my name is Tanai and I'm a women's intimacy and empowerment coach. For years, I tried to heal what I thought was commitment phobia, and I realized that there's actually no such thing. This podcast is an opportunity to have conversations about what gets in the way of us creating real intimacy, and how can we have more deep and vulnerable connections in our relationships. This is Commitment Phobe. Hi everyone, welcome back. It's been several weeks since I've recorded an episode and I've just been traveling all over the place. So it feels really good to come back here and connect with Mark Guay, who um, my friend Oren put me in touch with. So we've never met before. This is the first time that we're talking. And I reached out to Oren and I was like, I need to have more men on the podcast sharing their perspective in a way that and shed more light on what men go through in relationships. And, and so we could create more compassion because I could definitely use more compassion towards men um, when it comes to like intimacy and emotions and, and all of that. So welcome, Mark, to the show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's truly an honor. Please um, tell us what, what you do. What, what do you do as a coach? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think the way that I typically sum it up is I help men navigate the murky times in their life. Um, I work mostly with business leaders, uh, men that are facing deep challenges, either in their personal life or the professional, but they're afraid to to really talk about it. And so I help them grow through that experience and provide an opportunity for them to see the gifts inherent, inherent in the pain. I What really stood out to me is they're scared to talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little more about that. What, like, what does that mean in their world? Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of the, the men that I particularly work with are really high performers. And so they, they have a lot that's demanding or demanded of them. Uh, they're typically in leadership roles or the, the founder or co-founder of a big company. Uh, and the world that they tend to operate in is not one that's uh, probably the world that you and I tend to operate in uh, more frequently you know, if, if forgive me if I'm uh, sharing something that shouldn't be public, but my sense is that this is the type of stuff you talk on the show, talk about on the show. But earlier you were talking about punching the bed, right? We were sort of connecting over the the transmutation of anger through, you know, taking it out or transmuting it into the bed as opposed to beating up yourself or or beating up, you know, someone else, right? Uh, and that's, that's the kind of the world that we operate in. Uh, the leaders that I work with don't tend to be able to have those type of conversations. So uh, for me, it's a very confidential space for them to be able to uh, sift through the murkiness of, of what's showing up. Uh, on a deeper level, you know, it often is soul development and soul development is really, really uncomfortable. I've been working in the mindfulness space for about 15 years now. Uh, when I first started even talking about meditation in, in the business world, was kind of strange. You know, it was this new fancy thing. And uh, now meditation is normal. But what I notice is there's this, the way in which it's sold, the way in which soul development is sold is that it's this, uh, this will make you happier. And, uh, and, and that is a misnomer. Because even though, sure, meditation or yoga or many of the things that we talk about, they will bring about happiness. Uh, oftentimes, it's it's after you work through your stuff. It's it's often after you enter into the cave and 
you know, and like, and that is a, that's a scary place and not everyone makes it out alive. And I mean that literally I'll stop there. Cause I can just go all day, all day about this, but it's just, it's a, it's a joy to be able to work with men, to be able to provide a space for them to be able to really drop in, meet themselves in a way that they perhaps never have. Uh, and it changes the way in which they orient themselves in the world. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do want you to keep going on this path because like, it's just what we were talking about. You know, I told you I did a really intense chiropractor session yesterday and it brought up a lot. And this morning I woke up with so much rage, which then led to me punching the bed. But it's what you said. Like, I, I know that tomorrow I'm going to feel so light and it's only because I'm facing all the rage that I have inside me right now. <laughs> and that's not, not easy. It's not pretty. It's like the, what is it? Dante's Inferno, right? Like you have to go through the Inferno to get to, the, the happy place. Sure. Yeah. You know, and the way that I think about it is we're sort of circling around the concept of the, the full embodiment of the full and the full spectrum of human emotion and humans just in general, our culture does not promote that at all, but specifically with men, uh, it tends to completely, you know, teach men to, to cut off nearly all of it, if not at least the parts of sadness and, 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 and grief and maybe even complete joy. But my understanding is that it takes one to fully develop their emotional capability to actually evolve on a soul level. And that is tremendously difficult to do in a world that teaches you not to do it. But what happens for a lot of people is something occurs in their life that makes it no longer possible to ignore. And that's usually the meeting place that I meet men. Yeah, kind of like the beginning of a hero's, well, not the beginning of a hero's journey. It's like the, the turning point, right? Like everything's great and then <laughs> something happens. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to use the the Campbell reference, the hero's journey, it's, it's uh, what is it, the, 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 the dark part, the part where you're, you've already sort of seen the mentor a little bit, but you're just, it's, it's, it's up to you. You know, you can have all the guides that you want, but it's, it's up to you inevitably to do the hard work, to reach out for help when you need it and to trust that uh, there is something greater at the end of this journey. And that trust is easy to speak about, but um, certainly not easy. Certainly not easy to, to carry through, specifically when, and this is where my work comes in, specifically when you have a lot to balance. You know, you're talking about commitment here. To truly commit to the soul journey, the soul development, uh, yeah, it'd be pretty amazing if you were just going to be able to completely focus on that. And if you've made decisions to set, set up your life so that you can do it, Godspeed. But the majority of people, the ones that I work with, uh, they have a lot to balance, whether it's family, whether it's a relationship, a marriage, whether it's a home that they, you know, monetary assets that they have to take care of, or it's a job, especially if they're running a company. You can't just say, I'm going to take, most people can't, at least yet, haven't built up a way to say, I'm going to go take two years. Sometimes it's even way more than that. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go, you know, and, and do, do my work and then I'm going to come back. You can do that eventually, but most can't. And what I have found in my work is that you don't have to cessate from society. You don't have to cut yourself off. You don't have to quit everything, cut everything and go and become a vagabond. You can, that's beautiful, but you don't have to. It is possible to actually do deeper inner work and still juggle everything that you have to juggle. And 
I want to make sure that this point comes across in, in this conversation with you, because this is uh, kind of a, a rubbing point for me or, or a rough spot in, in men's work in particular is there's a, a there's a, a discernment that needs to be made, a level of discernment that needs to be made in how far, how deep one goes in their work, because most people, because that's what at least Western culture promotes is this go big or go home attitude. And it's this, just go as deep as you can go as hard again. You're going to take five grams of mushrooms. I'm going to take 10. Like it's this one up type of mentality, which is a losing game. It's a losing game. And, and, and oftentimes if you don't have a guide with you, uh, what ends up happening is, is you become so caught up in what it stirs up that it's nearly impossible for you to show up in your business, show up in your relationship, show up as a father in a balanced, loving, present way, because you're in such a reactive state. And, and that takes a, a level of discernment on both the coach's part and the client's part to navigate. Yeah, I, I so see that. It's like, it's so easy for us as humans to just go to the other extreme, right? Like, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to do the healing work and then like go just as hard. <laughs> Something, you know, that you said was, you know, about the, the importance of being connected to the emotions. And I, and I don't really know what question to ask here. I'm just going to kind of share with you my experience and then just hear, hear you out. Several times I've had the experience with men where I can feel like they're not, they don't, their heart isn't open or they're not connected to their emotions. And I point it out, <clears throat> not in like a critical kind of way, it's just something like, you know, like it just happens in conversation and, and they deny it. They're like, no, you're totally projecting, which like maybe I am, because of course you only, you know, pick up what you, what you feel, but they deny it. And then it's like six months, a year later, whatever happens and they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, tonight, like I was, I was so not emotional. Like I was so not connected to myself and my heart and my emotions and I didn't even see it. And I'm curious, like what is going on in that man? Or I mean, like maybe I'm generalizing, but like I like Oren, our friend told me like, you know, he, he one time had the experience of dating someone who was crying to him about something in their relationship and he couldn't feel anything at all. And that's when he realized like, wow, I'm so cut off from my emotions and I don't even know it. And I think that happens too in what you said, like men, you know, in that like masculine role have so much to juggle that they can make the decision. I'm shutting off my emotions. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. And like, how, what is it, what is happening inside? Cause I can't, I can't understand it. You know, I'm always connected to my emotions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately I have real world experience of exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, um, I'm, I, I'm not hiding away from my story, so feel free to push. And and also in this conversation, I, I want to encourage us both to to not just play the yes card. You know, if anything I say, you want to, you know, put your finger on for a moment and, and sit with or, or push against, by all means, go for it. Because I don't want to come across as someone that's figured it all out. I, I have I have gotten my ass kicked enough times already to learn. Like, there's so much I'm still trying to figure out. Uh to answer your question, the way that I have come to experience that, uh, and and I'm happy to share the theory, happy to share, because I'm an academic at heart. I am a first career is in, in education. And so uh, I tend to always, I'd like to be able to connect it to some sort of, um, you know, good, good data or good study. 
Um, but my understanding of what you're talking about is it's a loyal soldier. Are you familiar with that concept? No. Yeah. Woo-wee. Wow. What a, what, a, what, a, what a juicy, 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 juicy subject. So a loyal soldier is, is a part of one system that gets developed to protect them from feeling deep pain so that they can achieve something that they need to do. And the, the, the name Loyal Soldier comes from World War II, where Japanese fighter pilots were downed and they uh, survived on a stranded island, desert, deserted island, that uh, they were found, I forget how many, how, how long afterwards, but after the war was over, they were discovered, but they didn't believe that the war was over. So even though, you know, people came to them and they said, the war is over, you can go home now, they didn't believe it. They had developed such a belief system that the... The, everyone else was a spy, that the war is still going on, and they need a fight. Wait, is this a true story? Yeah, absolutely true story. Exactly, yeah. So this is not just made up. Oh my God, I thought it was like a myth. No, yeah. no, not at all. Wow. And so what happened is the only way for them, for their psyche to begin to believe that the war was actually over was to go, their their neighborhood, their village that they're, that they're originally from had to throw a celebration as if the war just ended. And they had to honor them and they had to thank them for their service and get them to feel loved, get them to feel appreciated so that then they could begin to relax, begin to exhale, begin to trust again. And so the loyal soldier is just a concept that at any point in our life that we experience what we identify as traumatic, we develop a protective system that's called a loyal soldier that creates some sort of behavior pattern in our life that at one point in time was really helpful. At one point in time, we needed that because it would have led to something, whether, you know, whatever it is, if you were raising right, a point, sort of yeah, whatever of it is, you needed some, you, you needed the loyal soldier's behavior to get through. But the thing is, is that the loyal soldier doesn't, it, it doesn't, time is irrelevant. So it still thinks that you are the same age that you were when it first came into your system. So that's kind of the, the the background of it. Applying it to what you're talking about, my understanding is that most men, most people, not just men, this is definitely not just a male issue, but men in particular uh, is where I focus. And not being able to cry, not being able to express, quote, a negative emotion is what they needed to do to get through whatever it is. It likely relates back to some sort of element as a kid where they were about to emote or they were in the process of emoting and they were shamed. And that shame taught them, hey, don't express that feeling ever again because mom or dad are not gonna love you or that group is gonna kick you out. What's hard to conceptualize is that if this happened at say 11 years old and you, for instance, you're a boy and you cry in the football team, this is a stereotypical example, but it is relevant, that group would kick you out. So, and that would be a psycho-spiritual death. And at 11 years old, that is one of the worst things to experience, getting ostracized or kicked out of a group. That is, that is a death to them to, at that age. As an adult, you know, okay, you know, it, there's other people, there's better people for me, all of that. But that loyal soldier still thinks that you're 11 years old. So likely in that man that you were referring to, they're unaware that that behavior pattern of not being able to feel open the heart uh, truly embody an emotion, not just think about the emotion, but embody it, viscerally feel it somatically, that was cut out from them. That was, you know, stuffed in. 
uh, at a certain point in time. And until you go back and not only you become aware of the time, but you actually process the charge in a way that you that the loyal soldier begins to trust you again. So in, that's one of the most powerful exercises that I often uh, lead men through is honoring the loyal soldier. And the key here, and, and if, you know, if those who are listening, if there's one thing you walk away with from me, from all that I just shared, it's that you can't just say, fuck you to the loyal soldier and say, I don't need you anymore. No, 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 no. It's going to come back. It's, it's stronger than you're ever going to be. Because the thing is, it's trying to help you. And once you reframe it and you realize that, hey, you're actually trying to help me. Like, oh my God, like you helped me through this experience. And then you bring back that experience. And you're like, oh my God, I see how you helped me. And it's this powerful, visceral ceremony. And once you honor that loyal soldier, the, the relationships the relationship begins to shift and it takes a while because that loyal soldier needs to trust that you're not going to be taken out. You're not going to, you know, for instance, say it was protecting you so that you still ran your business. You need to be able to prove to the loyal soldier that you can still feel the pain or whatever it was and still run your business. And that, that doesn't happen overnight. That happens when you get your community that supports you. That happens when you increase your competency, your ability to say like you, Tanya, or tonight, you knew right away, well, I woke up, I had the massage yesterday. Oh my God, I have all this energy, I have all this rage. Ah, you knew I'm gonna take it out. I'm gonna you, I'm gonna start punching the bed and I'm gonna transmute that emotion. That was your tool that you were able to just begin to use. Not everyone has that has that ability because they haven't had your experiences yet. So until the man learns what to actually do with it, it actually the loyal soldier is actually good. Like it actually should still be there. So for that man, it's not the assumption that he should open his heart is an, is not an, a good assumption. The the assumption that he definitely has a loyal soldier that needs some tending to, and it might take years for him to be able to reframe that. That's the assumption, but it needs to be a titrated process. Needs to be a level of discernment that the person's still able to do what he what he wants to do. So that's my answer to that beautiful, beautiful question. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and, and the, what you said in the end ties to what I was going to ask, you know, like so key that he, it's not that he should open his heart because then that takes out like the, like the expectation or the demand. If, if it's like in a partnership, you know, like I have a client right now who is dating someone and she, she wants um, him to talk about his emotions and, he doesn't. He's like, let's just move on. Why do we have to do this? And so that spikes her defense mechanism up. And she's like, I can't trust this man. Like he, you know, how can I trust someone who doesn't want to talk about their emotions? Yeah, you're spot on. You're spot on. I, that's that's a, definitely a theme in men's work. And, and that's why a lot of men come actually to men's work from the from that sort of position where their partner wants to trust them. And, and why men's work is really beautiful, specifically when you work with a group of men, is because when you're able to actually express that sadness or whatever it is that you're feeling, but actually feel it, not just talk about it, and you're able to do that and be witnessed by other men who love and appreciate you, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's extremely, extremely powerful. But yeah, that's something that I often hear a lot. I, I can't really connect to that as much personally, because I've been married for 11 years and I'm happy to share my personal stories is a long one. That's why I'm kind of not going there. Uh, but there were many years where I was very numb and my wife is very, very, very present and calls me out on my bullshit and in a loving. Yeah. Maybe you could talk on that. Cause I was going to say like, 
I was just thinking, what's the best way to meet a man in that way? And one thing I was thinking is like just letting the man know how it feels to to be in that, you know, to to receive that. Like, oh, it, I feel sad that we can't, you know, that, that you're not, that you don't want to talk about the emotions, um, or or I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe in this conversation when you don't want to talk about your emotions. Like, how did how, and, and I and I want to hear how she called you out because my the, what I just suggested is a little gentler than than calling someone out. Yeah, you know, I, I, I certainly don't have a, a very clean answer, you know, to to this question of, of how, like what one in your position, what a woman in your position should should say to a man. Because in my experience, uh, yes, it's good if a man opens up to a woman, but actually what tends to happen is if their partner makes their man feel safe enough to actually drop into his heart and to feel the emotion and to not be abandoned, often that's the fear. The fear is that, that that man will be abandoned. And oftentimes that happens, actually. Right. Yeah. So, the minute the man's emotional, it's like, oh, Well, because no. oftentimes that affects the sexual charge. And I mean, not all the time, but there's a there's a correlation there. But but yeah, that's why I want to know, like, how how does a woman then create that safety? Because, you know, it's, it's definitely co-creation. So it's a great question. <laughs> you know, I, I again where I tend to go with is I'm not sure necessarily if that's the right path, meaning if it's the woman's job to be able to do that. And in my experience, if that happens, if the woman, if the woman does that and gets the man to feel safe enough to feel, and then he feels, and if she stays, that's beautiful. Yet what ends up happening is this really interesting situation where it's this strong codependence, meaning the man no longer, there's no one else that he can feel that way with. So then his woman is only, or his partner rather, because it could be you know, a homosexual relationship as well, uh, is the only one that, that uh, he feels safe with. And then that weight, that weight is heavy. And at first, you know, what, what starts off as something beautiful, oh my gosh, he's opening up to me, ends up becoming like, he's only opening up to me. I've worked with many men where that's the, that's the situation, where their, their wife is the only one that, or their lover is the only one the partner is the only one that they feel safe enough to go to. And it's really, really hard to do that because then you're able to access a part of yourself that was once disowned, but you're only able to do that in a relationship. And that puts a lot of tension on the relationship. It alters the relationship. It's messy. So my, my answer to that question is, quite honestly, my opinion, not the woman's job. Instead, he needs to go to uh, work with men. And and find the group of men. There's many men's groups out there. You know, I'm not. I'm certainly not the only man at all that's doing this type of work. It's not as mainstream, uh, though. There's a lot of people that do it. And find the right group. Find the group that makes you feel safe. Not all men's groups are the same by any means whatsoever. But my point is, is once the man be, is be you know works with with other men and is able to then feel safe to drop into his body in the presence of other men that is better in the long term, far better in the long term than if they were to just do it with their partner. Damn, I have never heard of that in those words. Like I've always heard how great men's work is, but I, yeah, it makes so much sense. And, and it just, it, it just has me think back to like how I was raised and the stories that I was told about relationship and how it's like the one person you open up to the most out of everyone in your life. And like, you, you, you know, like, you have all this trust and, the, and this emotional connection. And yeah, it's just, 
it's so funny. It's, it's like, why not have that emotional connection with other men, not just with your partner? Because there's a, there's a lot of men that are not open to it. And there's a lot of men doing, quote, men's work that actually shame negative emotions. Really? Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's just every, every man has to has to go with what what he you know goes for. But uh, there's some groups that are definitely way more open to what we're talking about here. Uh, and then there's others that say that that's total BS and instead uh, be stoic and by stoic uh, detach from the emotion, push through, be a warrior, which is really just a repackaging, a rebranding of the same st the same stuff that actually shamed the boy in particular. So they're re-traumatizing themselves unintentionally wow it's funny you say that i once spoke to a man who told me he doesn't believe in happiness and it made me so angry and he sent me a link that said like what is stoicism and then uh, yeah yeah yeah, so I, <laughs> yeah well the, one of the greatest so. misnomers of stoicism is that it's not about not feeling it's about being able to separate from the feeling when you when you know when and where and so what most people do my understanding is they don't it's supposed to be you're supposed to you're supposed to be discerning and when you feel it which is actually really powerful. You don't want to, when you're in a, a heated conversation work, you don't want to actually feel everything because you're going to likely become reactive, which is destructive. And so instead, you go and do what you just did and you, you identify, I have this charge, I need to do something with it and I need to bring it into my own inner world. But that is, that actually, that is what stoicism can teach, but most don't, most don't um, connect uh, connect that with stoicism as well as it should be yeah that makes a lot of sense and and of course yeah I actually like I can imagine I, I, rage I mean just because like for me rage is definitely something that I've you know had to learn how to channel in in healthy ways I'd love to hear some of the ways that you work with men and and how to channel that in a healthy way when they are like in you know a high position and in charge of a lot of people yeah that's a good one yeah, anger, you know, every every emotion often is either suppressed or just completely cut off from from most men. Uh, anger is an interesting one because most men or a lot of men I work with tend to feel like they do have access to their anger, but they often have access to aggression. And and there's and that's just a one way in which to funnel your your anger. So let me sit with this for a moment and see what is showing up best for talk about anger. Yeah, so the it's not just anger specific. So let me let me share a story and then and then I'll share an exercise. And feel free to I realize I'm talking a lot here and, and it's because I'm honored to be the guest as your on your show. But I, I want I want you to, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm passing the mic to you because you you know so much. It's really beautiful to hear your perspective as well. Um, Thank you. So I you know, something that I that I've done with men uh, on intensives is we play a game. And, and so I'll give everyone like a bamboo sword <laughs> and, and we'll play a game where you have, like, if you hit the man, like in the, um, in the arm or something like that, he's out. Right. Uh, or if you, sometimes we'll wear a flag around our waist. Like if you end up taking the flag off, like he's dead. So he's out of the, he's out of the battle. Uh, and there's a, and this is why I do that because what, what happens every single time is you give men, grown men, adult men, these, you know, bamboo swords, which are still, bamboo it hurts and you say okay fight and you know that you got to go and grab someone's uh you got to tap someone in the arm or you got to grab their their flag what ends up happening is that it's like zero to a hundred 
it's like, and then there's usually one person gets whacked in a way that there's blood and it, and it ends up leading to a discussion around like, what just happened there? You know, what just, what just happened there? You, and, and what it ends up leading to is what was discovered in the work of the documentary Raising Cain with Michael Thompson is that when uh, men are, when they're little kids, they're often told not to fight. And what ends up happening when you do that is they don't know what their edges. They don't know where their edges. So they don't know actually what is play and what is pain. And what ends up happening when you become an adult is the same thing. You don't know where the level is of where actually you're, you know, you're, you're, you're actually hurting someone. And so instead you just sort of suppress, suppress the anger and you drink, right? Or you take it out in pornography and masturbation. That tends to be the, out, the outlets that most men, most men choose. That is an aha for a lot of men when they play that game because they realize I lost my sense of play. I, I forget. I forgot kind of like where the line is between play and where the the, the line is of, of actually hurting someone. And it becomes a big aha for them to be able to learn like, where is my power line? And when is my power actually hurting someone? That's a big, that's a big aha for them tremendously. The exercise is the simple embodiment one. And it's, you can put on music, you know, or you can do it on your, on your own, uh, uh, Gabrielle Ross work with embodied, you know, embodied dance five, five rooms is, is great with this, but uh, I often don't do it with that. I just ask them to just focus on um, where, um, where they'll feel the charge in their body. And you just, uh, you identify where the, where you feel it. Uh, then you move the body in, in, you know, whatever way it wants to move. I often invite men to go out on a wild land and do this in a way where there's no one else around so that they feel psychologically safe to do whatever they want to do, you know, whatever they want to do. And, and oftentimes clothes come off and, uh, and, uh, and beating of the ground, you know, happens, but you're completely alone. And men need that a lot of times to be able to open up to the, themselves. Cause it's not just that they don't open up to their partners or they open up to other men, they're not opening up to themselves. And when you open up to yourself and you see yourself for the first time, not only do you fall in love, but you get really sad at what you did, what you've been ignoring for so long. So anyways, uh, once you move it around, uh, then you start processing it mentally, but it's embodiment and it's mentally and going, okay, well, you know, what does this connect to? Is there any past? any any other people come to mind and then um and then what emotion is this is this is this anger is this rage and, and what does it connect to in the past and then what does it connect to now in in the present and then and then from that state of actually feeling it seeing how it connects to the past seeing how how who it connects to right now in the present you then decide what an action step would be that is actually clean now that you've processed it then you step into the conversation and, and if it was towards a partner or a coworker or whatever, because you've done the work of beginning to process it, you're able to actually go and have that conversation with a person. doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. This takes, this is, this is a lifelong practice, but by first being able to actually feel it, just like you did this morning, well, you know, you're then able to enter into the conversation in a more loving, more compassionate way where you're still honoring the anger. You're still being very clear about what you were hurt by or what you're angry about or, or whatever, but you're, you're choosing words. You're acting in a way that comes across as more compassionate. Even if it's uncomfortable, it's more compassionate. And oftentimes that is received better. And then oftentimes that leads to connection over disconnection. It's crazy what I was hearing you, like while I was hearing you say that, I just kind of envisioned like tribal men. See, I, I like have images of men just like screaming or like shooting arrows or like 
hunting and that must have been such a good way of like channeling all that rage and now it's like you know you put on your suit and tie and everything is so compressed well uh, it's that's what's that is what's castrated from men uh well women too just the wild part of oneself that i mean we for just generations have tried to ignore the fact that we're animals and we are i mean i it's a, as uncomfortable as it may feel and as fancy as we like to make ourselves feel we're really not much different than the birds in the sky or, or the you know the lions that walk on the safari yeah i mean before punching the pillow, I was in my Pilates class and I just, I was like, man, if only it was socially acceptable for me to just like throw something and like scream and, <laughs> it and is, leave. It is, though. You know? It is. But this is the funny part. It is. Start, it, so I don't know about down there in Mexico City, but uh, there's there's these concept, concept rooms now called break rooms or rage rooms or anger rooms. It started in Dallas. And this is the way we as culture sort of say, okay, now, like, here's a say here's a place for you to do it you know like this is kind of how we do it but eventually yeah that will i think become a little bit more common i mean i'm I'm curious to see the day where instead of like a you know like a like a makeup party or like what were those like i forget the name of the the company but it was like we're gonna invite everyone over and we're gonna talk about this product and we're gonna sell it oh uh, yeah mm -hmm. whatever that was i forget at the moment instead of that it's like we're gonna break stuff like we're gonna you know, like that kind of thing, which is happening in the subcultures that you and I inhabit, but it's not happening in the mainstream yet. But it, it probably will. I wouldn't be shocked. It just needs courageous entrepreneurs to step into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, already I've, you know, I've, I've been to retreats and workshops and stuff where they, like, they encourage you to scream into your hands or like punch a pillow. Like whenever, whenever it is that you feel that surge of anger come up, you know. Are you familiar with uh, the with the Maori? The Maori down in New Zealand, Oaxaca. Yeah, I actually went. To, I went to like a dinner um, led by them, where they did like a little dance and a and food and stuff and ceremonies um, when I was in New Zealand. Did you see them perform? Uh, I believe it's called. Yeah, Oaxaca. with like the with like the dragon's breath. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. That that right there is 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 one of the most beautiful ways. I feel to to often really channel not only the warrior but also that anger. I mean, you stomp the ground, you stick out your tongue, you which which I believe when you did that, it said like I will fight so hard I will eat you. It's like <laughs> terrifying, right? And you scratch your chest. I mean, that is just such a powerful, um, you know, powerful embodiment practice. But I love watching the All Blacks, the rugby team, the rugby team. They perform that at the beginning of every match. It's just so beautiful to watch them do it. Not only because it's just what an amazing culture, but also what a what a way to start a battle. Yeah, I'm gonna look that up. Something that that also popped in my head when you were talking, you know, boundaries is a really big conversation amongst like women's circles. And I'm curious if that's something that that you work with with men. Take me into your world. What does that mean to? Yeah, like you know, in in my world, definitely. Okay, there, there's many things. There's like women are like yeah i get to i get to have boundaries since walls where it's like then it's like you don't get to do this to me which is great because then you're setting that limit but then sometimes there is no like sharing your heart and sharing you know hey this is this doesn't feel good um it, there's like a little bit of make wrong there so that that's happening a lot and then also just you know the good girl syndrome of not wanting to speak up and, and make someone uncomfortable and and like oh i don't want to make this weird if i say something so i'm just gonna be quiet and tolerate it because it's not so bad you know a lot of learning just 
how to speak from an empowered place, but also not take it too far where it's like a, a defense. Yeah, you know, I'll admit I don't often, I don't work specifically with boundaries in terms of like how to set them and all that, or I don't use that language. I'm aware of it. I get it. I'm learning myself, absolutely. As a new dad, getting my butt kicked every day, uh, whatever boundaries. <laughs> very vastly, I mean, that's just a different conversation for for parents about what boundaries are. The one yeah. boundary, I say this jokingly, <laughs> but, but true, the one boundary we have is we lock the bathroom door and it's like, that's mommy's private time or that's daddy's private time, you know, because as kids, they're just insatiably curious. I mean, whenever I, whenever I, I urinate, it's like a Disney world, you know, <laughs> I'm so fascinated at like, wow, what's going on, you know? Um, so boundaries with, a, with as a parent, is pretty difficult. Oh, I mean, yeah, that'll, that'll test you and, and your, your temper. Right. But I, I was curious because since you do work with a lot of men that, you know, have high powered men, I think that's what yeah, that's a funny term when you break it down like that. But just men, men. I work with men who are in leadership positions that, you know, one would say has a lot of power. You know, in like telling employees like how to do things and and learning how to do that in a way that doesn't come out as like a dictator. I was curious if that's something that you work with with your clients. Yeah, well, honestly, that's really difficult because uh, to a lot of times to be a good leader is you have to be available. But the one thing that uh, is so now we're shifting into leadership, which is interesting because that does that does often show up a lot of times in my work. Before this, actually, I was just on a call with a group in Amazon. What ends up happening actually is setting up a boundary in terms of getting helping your your direct report know very clearly like what do they have power to make decisions on and what don't they. And unless you answer that question, unless you have a conversation with them so that they have really they're clear on what they can make decisions on without you and what they need your, your help on, you're going to always get called into meetings. You're going to always get called into, you know, uh, help with something. And so oftentimes it's on the leader to be able to sit down with direct report and do their own diligence to step out so that that person has clear, is clear about what they're able to make decisions on and then actually honor that. And if that person messes up, that person messes up. It's okay, you learn from that. But instead of actually, most leaders have this where they just, they think they're helping because they're, they're, they're feeling helped or they're feeling as if they're helpful because they're just running around like crazy and just helping everyone and all this. But what they've actually done is they've set up a behavior a culture that has the common behavior of so-and-so, Dave does everything or, you know, or, or whatever, or he's always here to help me out, but it actually disempowers the team. So Step one is actually getting clear about how you're doing that and how you're superheroing, how you're how you're showing up and trying to save the day every time to make yourself feel as if you're worthwhile. But the truth is, is oftentimes the best leaders have done a good enough job so that they don't have any phone calls. Nothing's going on. They're able to be like Tim Ferriss and just go, you know, check out for for because they've they've spun enough systems, they've created enough trust so that they can go, you know, and work on themselves, for instance, if they if they wanted to. So in terms of boundaries. It's getting really clear about how you're actually setting setting yourself up for a whole bunch of people trying to ask of your time. So stopping that, getting clear about what a person has has con, you know just control over, so that you're not brought into all these meetings. And then, even though you're still going to probably get called into a whole bunch, it's getting really clear about this is my strategic time. And it's so funny. It sounds really interesting, really silly when you break it down like this, especially when we have this type of conversation. But a lot of the men that I work with have a really hard time 
um, saying, I need two hours. Like this is my two hour window and I'm working on, this is for me to work on the stuff that only I can do. It's really hard for them to do. You called it miss, miss, uh, good, good girl syndrome. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Even though like, as, as I hear you talk now, it's like, this is what in my world sounds like the caretaker, like the, like the mama role where you're like, you know, yeah, but it's a, it's so cool to hear it from like with different words. Well, with men in particular, I mean, you know, I think this is the leadership thing too, because I've worked with women that have had a similar situation, but it's, they want to feel as if they're, 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 they're needed. And that's how they've defined their purpose in the world, but it ends up uh, disempowering a lot of people, you know, oftentimes. Yeah. So setting up that two hour block is often really difficult because they feel bad. It's really hard to say no. It's really hard to say no when people are asking for help. And that often is a loyal soldier part of them as well for them to be able to work on and say, why do you feel like you always need to help? Do you not, you know, what's going on there with not trusting that these people are actually doing okay. Even if no one's asking of them of their time, still sitting for two hours and trying to focus on themselves or their own strategic time is difficult for them because they've, they've been wrapped up for, for so long in this identity that to be successful is to always you know, be needed. And they set up the system, there's culture in their team where they are always needed because they've disempowered their team. You know, it's, it's so bad. I'm actually like surprised at how surprised I am. Oh yeah? I mean, what are you surprised at? My, like my story is that when I, when I would date men, they showed no emotion and I would try to match that. Um, and so I never knew what was going on behind that like blank face. It was so painful. Yeah. I would interact with a man who like wouldn't show anything and I would never imagine the stress that they're going through. Oh my gosh, pressure to do this, pressure to do that. Like, yeah, I just always figured if, if he's not showing it, then nothing's going on. So as I hear you say that, I'm picturing like the guy who's like, he looks like he has it all together and he's not going to take two hours of his time because he's a hard worker and I would have... I would never assume, wow, what's going on behind that is actually all these things that you're saying. Absolutely. And, and you know, the way in which my clients show up in a call with me is, is vastly different than how they often show up on the company front. And especially if they're representing the company, sometimes you need that because that's what success looks like. Success looks like the person who has it all figured out. And if you're a public company in particular, you do need to have a public persona that says, I got my shit figured out. Absolutely. Because people are trusting you not only with their time, but with their money. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a it's a heavy burden, a heavy weight to be able to carry. And and if you're if you're not doing the inner work, if you haven't found a men's group or a coach or a therapist or whatever it is you specifically trust to help you process what's showing up internally, it's going to go somewhere. It's going to go somewhere. That that is unfortunate. But true. And uh, even to this day, I mean, let's just take, you know, just literally the other week, uh, we had the CFO, Chief Financial Officer from Best Buy or Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm sorry. I believe it was Bed Bath & Beyond. Have you heard the story? No. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's just so sad to hear this, but uh, he jumped off his balcony in, in Manhattan, one of the wealthiest, you know, one, I would, say, I would believe one percenter. And uh, still, because of all the stress of what was going on, he chose that that's the route that I'm going to take instead of feel the pain that of, of what I'm feeling. And so it's no surprising then that 70% of suicides are by men. Yeah, I'm very much enjoying a lot of celebrities and a lot of men, um, musicians and, and 
artists and stuff that are talking about the mental health work that they're doing. Even like Sean Mendes called off his um, tour because he was like, peace out. Like, I got to work on my mental health. I'm not okay. I heard of that. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the artist myself, but I heard that there's few, there's a few that are, are choosing to do that. And this is what's interesting to me because I think mental health is kind of like the step one, because that's true. We do need to talk about the, the mental health aspect of it. And that's so significant because there's just too many people that feel as if they don't have another, another way. And that's really unfortunate because as you and I know, there are many tools to be able to process what's showing up emotionally. Uh, but then there's, there's, then there's one step deeper that I'm looking forward to mainstream catching up with, which is that once you actually embody the full spectrum of emotions, you're able to take on more, you're able to show up with more presence, you're able to have more power, you're able to you, you wield more power because you've carved your vessel to be able to hold more. And so what, what, what's sort of difficult to, to sell uh, in the mainstream is this idea of, oh, you're feeling a lot of pressure? We'll do the really hard work of feeling all the pain, but then after that, you're going to be able to actually be way more powerful in the way you show up. It's going to be a very different way of showing up. You're not just going to step back into old into the old way, but it's a new way of showing up that is far more powerful. It's going to it's going to attract a wider audience or a deeper audience. People are going to trust you far more, whether it's your romantic partner, as you talked about, or the clients that you serve or the the customers that you serve. But it takes a while to get there because as as you know, it's it's messy. It's really difficult to have not felt something for 25 years and then to all of a sudden feel it. And I feel like it would be wrong of me not to just share a little bit of my story. Is that okay? Please. I was about to ask you if it's okay if we go a little later than we planned. Because I, I have one more question too. You know, summing summing up a tremendously difficult journey uh, in just a few sentences, when I when my emotional body turned back on and the way it turned back on was um, through a confluence of a bunch of events and a bunch of practices that just sort of converged into this, you know, moment where one of my former students committed suicide, my dad passed away, and all of a sudden my emotions burst open and I felt grief for the first time ever and real grief. And that's where I realized grief is not sadness. Like I always thought I was told that grief is just really a really deep sadness. No, utterly different vastly different separate emotional experience it is hard to explain unless you've been through it and so i felt grief for the first time how old are you mm, good question mid-30s and i had realized and it led to a very very long journey very difficult journey where i had realized that i turned my emotions off uh pretty much around like 13 or 14 ish and i even though i thought i had I, I had emo I, I had emotions. It was all mental. It was all mental. It was like, oh, that's anger. So I'm just gonna separate from that. Or oh, oh, that's that's sadness. So okay, I'm gonna feel that for a moment and then I'm gonna go. But I never cried, never really felt anything. It, it it stopped pretty much like right at the neck, you know? And once so that broke open and all of a sudden I felt my body. I I would the sen my sensorial experience change dramatically, meaning I can feel the, you know, the wind caress my skin, you know, and I would be off on like a mountaintop, you know, and with my shirt off and like feeling like the wind, like soothe me. And then the land and this, and I wasn't on a psychedelic here either, like in land begins, you begin, begin to feel the, the pulse of the land and then the, the bird crying or like, and it's just, but I can feel it through the body. And it was just, 
utterly bewildering because I couldn't figure out for the longest time how to navigate it because I couldn't turn it off. It went from it went from not feeling really anything to, you know, like for for to give your, your audience a perspective of what I mean when not feeling anything. My wife was very sick for a long time. And so uh, it was a very dark time for many years. She had Lyme disease for a while. And I used to drive down the road in the middle of the winter. And I would and I was living in New York at the time in the country. And when it was like five degrees outside, I would roll down the window, I'd put my hand outside. And I, and I would just wait until finally it got so painful that I was probably getting close to, you know, could be frostbite, but I needed to be able to feel something. I had gotten so numb that I just needed to feel alive. And that's how I felt alive. It's not much different than the person you know, who cuts themselves. And so when I was then able to actually feel everything, I couldn't turn it off. And it was really, really difficult. And this is, goes back to the discernment that we talked about. It was really difficult to be in any sort of conversation because I was overstimulated. I was able to feel everything. And it was like, and this is where it's difficult in the world that we live in and why you and I and the people that are listening, you know, value retreats because when your sensitive when your sensitivity increases, it is really, really, really difficult to be a productive member of modern day society. It's it's and your story represents a lot of men. Like I what you're sharing, I've seen a lot of my guy friends go through of like feeling totally lost because they're suddenly feeling all these things I've never felt before. You know, I'm not even I'm not special. I'm not special. <laughs> no, but I think it's great that you could speak to all of these guys. I'm I'm making a joke though because a lot of times what ends up happening is like people will be like, "I'm a god. I'm a god. Yeah, I'm a god." And that was when you realize like actually this is this is you reclaiming something that is normal. You know, and you're like, "Oh, that's a humbling experience." Mm, yeah. So you're saying that's it. That's it. No, that's, that's, I mean, unless there's more of the story you want to share, I don't, I don't hide any of it. It's just, it was a very long journey. Mm. Very, very long. Yeah. I did want to ask one more thing. A lot of guys that I, that are, that are friends that will say like, I'm, I really got to make this much money so that I can be ready for that relationship. And I'm curious on your perspective, if it's really about money. Cause like, I get, you know, that like for men specifically, or for whoever in the partnership is holding that masculine role, it's important to like be the provider, right? But I am sometimes curious if like, will, will that really provide that? Or is it something like what you were saying about like connecting something within or the emotions or is it a combination maybe? But what have you seen? What's your experience? I, I do have an answer on that, but I want to throw it back to you because there's so many different ways to answer that. So what what do you think the answer is? I don't know. I mean, I I, I just... I see, I see the point. I see the sense of like, I see maybe that money represents security and stability and that's what's really there. But then also maybe like the fact that, that men in particular, their value has been tied into like, how much can they provide for? How much can they give? And I also see how it is easier for a man to be like, I'm just going to focus on this and I'm not going to be available for the relationship because that's going to take me out of focusing on this. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's very common. Yeah. So let me answer it this way. There, because here, this is what I love. That's such a juicy question. Okay. <laughs> it's such a juicy question because the answer is so nuanced. Mm. And I'm going to share a perspective and answer that likely is going to tick off someone that's listening. And I and that's great. I invite that. Love that. Yeah. Because because that that type of question is one where it's like depends on the situation. It's context based. It's worldview based. 
You know, it's just, it's a very interesting, uh, juicy question. What I, what I want to say first before sharing my perspective is that I see the same thing with men wanting to become fathers. So I work, you know, I'm a, I'm a new father and I'm, I'm starting to enter more into, I want to actually gather more fathers I, because of it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult journey or rather I have felt very alone in the, in the becoming a father in the way in which I want to be a father, you know? And so I want to gather more men who are really intentional about fatherhood, not just in being present and helping out the mother, but, but totally in, in how to prepare their kids, uh, and, and, and how to, uh, develop rites of passage as well and reclaim a lot of those elements of culture that have been lost or so, uh, so I hear that with men a lot as well, who actually really want kids. They really want children, but they're getting closer to 40 or they're, or they're after they're 50 and uh and they don't feel like they have their stuff figured out like i haven't figured out my stuff enough yet to be able to manage a kid and i say hey you tell me when when that happens because i get that and at the same point in time you know we've been figuring it out for a really long time and i always encourage men to say if you really do want to have children but you're afraid to have children uh that's totally normal because it is a rite of initiation it is it is the most beautifully beautiful experience I've ever had that's opened my heart and kicked my ass at the same time. And it still is very much. Uh, so my, my answer to that question is that you were talking about uh, the answer to the question that you asked specifically is this. So when my wife got pregnant and my wife and I have been together for uh, 17 years, I think. And then we've been married for 11 and we've, we've, we've seen each other change. We have a picture of us in college in our kitchen that we'd often look at and just laugh and go, like just how much we've grown together because we're just vastly different uh, people. And sorry, I just got sidetracked by how lucky <laughs> I feel. Yeah, I was going to say like time. the fact that you guys grew together because yeah. in that amount of time you could have grown apart. It, yeah, it was It was definitely not, it's definitely not been a very easy journey. I'm very fortunate though. Uh, but this, th this is what I noticed. And this is the controversial part. So our culture preaches equality a lot and I'm all for that. I'm all for that 100%. I absolutely think everyone should have the right to choose whatever he or she wants. Personal autonomy is my number one value. It's your life. You do what you want with it. You're going to face enough, you know, cultural norms and government regulations and, and peer pressure that is going to try to steer you away from making your own choices, but it's your life. You do what you want. But even though I, I, I understand equality, what I noticed when my wife got pregnant was really interesting in terms of the provider role. So what I mean by that is I watched my wife start to grow a baby in her belly. And I literally watched her physical body go from this fit, uh, mobile, functional body to as we got closer to the full term, which is 10 months, she was she was really a mobile. Like you know, it was really difficult. It wasn't bedridden, but like, you know, walking around was arduous. And so I I was I really was fascinated by that. And I thought interesting and so what i noticed is that her body was being was preparing for birth but in a way where she needed to feel safe literally her body got to a place where if someone was coming to hurt her she couldn't run and i thought wow that's really interesting and when she gave birth come on anyone who's ever given birth knows like you're staying put until that baby comes out like and we were you know very lucky we had the, the room set up we had music playing ambient lighting like it was very very beautiful but during that time of 
watching my wife go from uh, conception to to giving birth to then really the first, even still now, and our son's two years old, is it's that you can't really run away easily if someone's coming to harm you. And what that got me to realize was my role as a man to protect. Because if we didn't have all these modern day, you know, uh, niceties, it would be my job not only to make sure that she has food and shelter, but that she's safe, that there's no one that's going to come and try to hurt her or hurt her kid or whatever. And that got me to connect more deeply with that primal aspect of a man to protect, because that's all we can do. Because what happens as a man, you want to feel helpless, have a kid. <laughs> Because you watch your wife give birth and you're like, holy moly, I can't believe I just, exp how did that happen? I can't, my body can't do that. Like, what? You know, you feel so inept as a man. And then, and then you're like, I can't even feed the thing. And you got this little like floppy fish thing for a few months, you know, which is what a newborn's kind of like. And all it just needs to be held and then put on the nipple. And unless you're fortunate enough to have, you know, another mother around that can breastfeed, or, or your baby is able to take in uh, other animal milk, or if you're able to get access to, uh, you know, um, uh, baby, um, a baby food, what's it called? Formula. formula. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, formula. Uh, your your baby's going to die, truthfully, you know? And so as a man, you're like, oh my God. And so like, that's what we have to do. That's the only thing that we can do. So I connect with men that say that, but is money the thing? Probably not. Probably not. It's probably more so of their, of their, 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 yeah, there's a number of different things. Now, money is, when people think it's money, it's often something, money is such a joke in terms of the personal development world because we place so much significance on it. But it's just a, the way I look at money is it's just a, a value exchange. It's just a, no different than I value this. So here's the way in which I value that by exchanging this paper dollar or this currency. And there's more to that. The money money mindset is something that often does show up as well. But yeah, short answer, not always money. Mm. How did that, I want to know how that landed. Oh my God, I loved it. I was like, wow. I, Yeah, that was, that was so beautifully said. And, and I'm so glad that you told it through your own experience with, with the baby story. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for hearing it. And I'm curious your audience too, you know, if that, if that bothered anyone, I would I would love to to, to hear about that because it it's 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 an uncomfortable thing to sit with, but I, I get it. I get it now. For at least the, the people that I know, it would bother them, but a part of them would know it's true, but they just don't want to see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it is it's it is tough to to detach from that for sure. I mean, I've been I'll just, I'll just finish with, with with this that I've personally been working on like creating the sense of calm that money gives me just in my body without relying on like needing to have money. Not having money is not fun. That is a really awful experience. If you've never experienced that, go try it. Whoever's listening, it sucks. In this world, not fun. Especially if you eat organic and all of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. If you're a bougie you vagabond. To be value, yeah, yeah. A, lot, a lot of different things. I love, I love people that travel the world where they pay more on more for food than they do their 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 hostel. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. they're gonna spend ten dollars on a juice, you know, and then seven dollars on uh, renting a tiny room. Or yes, like yeah, for sure. That's so funny. Thank you so much for such a beautiful conversation. We took it. 
we took it to so many places. I, I feel like, like we covered a lot and um, I, I know it's going to resonate with a lot of people. So I'm excited. And I know you invited people to share what they thought and, and if they're triggered or, or anything else. So yeah, let, let the audience know how they can reach out to you and, and what they can reach out to you for. Sure. Yeah. So you're welcome to reach out to me at my website, which is my full name, markwguay.me. Uh, uh, you can also listen to my meditations for free on Insight Timer. And I look forward to hearing from people. Awesome. And you're you're not currently on Instagram, right? I saw that you're taking a break. I love social media. I just, uh, I have personally found that on a business level, it doesn't often make sense for me. And also on a personal level, my relationship to it tends to be uh, more of a disservice than a, than, than a positive yeah. thing. I, I, I'm hearing I, that a lot. Like, yeah. So I, I totally resonate. I, I value it. I have friends that are very, that's how they make their money, but they also just really get a lot from connecting with people on it. I haven't figured that out yet. I, w I will likely again in the future. I used to have a team that I would uh, manage my social media. So maybe I'll do that again in the future. Cause I do love meeting people, uh, you know, this world is so beautiful and we're all going through amazing experiences that we think we're alone in. And the world needs people not only to do their own inner work, but also to bring back that which has been lost. You know, I get excited when I get to hang out with people like you and Oren and uh, and hear the, the ways in which people are bringing courageous businesses to the world or they're creating their communities. Because as a father, I, I, I'm very hopeful what the future will look like that my son gets to grow up in but it's only if you know you and i and our our colleagues and friends are courageous enough to you know to not just do our inner work but do something with it beautiful thank you so so much hey you thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of commitment phobe if you like what you heard make sure to share with your friends your lovers your ex-lovers anyone that you think could benefit from having a conversation like this one and it would be super helpful if you subscribed and left a five-star rating on iTunes to make sure that this podcast gets spread around to as many listeners as possible and we can start changing the conversation that we have around intimacy and relationships. If you want to find out more information about what I do as a women's coach and some of my other projects that I'm working on, you can find my information in the bio of this episode or you can reach out to me directly on Instagram and shoot me any questions that you have. See you next time.